Welcome to the Cold Steel Podcast, hosted by Amir Farouk and myself, Chad Ball. We consider it an absolute privilege to bring you guests from around the world who are truly experts in their craft. Our mission is to offer you a combination of not only masterclasses on clinical surgery topics, but also insights into achieving personal growth, productivity, and fulfillment as both a surgeon and perhaps more importantly, as a human. On this week's episode, we have the pleasure and privilege of speaking with Dr. Donna Kimmelarczyk. Dr. Kimmelarczyk is the first endocardiac surgeon in Canada and has won numerous awards for her trailblazing work. We were lucky enough to catch up with her and ask her about her career and to get her thoughts on how we can make surgery a more inclusive profession as well as how we might better serve our Indigenous patients. Be sure to check out the links in the show notes. Can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up? grew up in Ottawa, um, but really kind of the background to that or kind of more meat to that answer is um, I'm Inuit or well, singular is Inuk. Um, and I was born in Winnipeg, but lived up north or back up north where my mother's family is, um, but only for a brief time when I was an infant. Um, and my father is uh, non-Indigenous, um, and they had the foresight or understood the importance of education and decided to move what we call up north down south, in quotation marks, I put it, because down south is any big city, not in the Arctic. <laughs> and so uh, they did that because they wanted to have better educational opportunities for their children, that their kids would have all the same you know, extracurriculars and uh, opportunities and experiences that all other Canadian kids get to have. Uh, And so they settled in Ottawa um, because Mm -hmm. they could both work there, but also there was a large Inuit population there. So we could still be connected to our our culture. Uh, And I'm really, you know, thankful for that and owe a lot uh, to my parents that they kind of had that foresight back in, you know, the early 90s that this would be an important thing to do for their kids. That's such an interesting uh, sort of origin story, you know, at the risk of sounding um, really ignorant, and I I don't certainly don't mean it that way. But for some of our listeners who may not know, could you define for them sort of what Inuit means and, and, and what that encompasses? Absolutely. And no, it's like, you know, it's not ignorant at all. And like, I love that people ask, you know, because it's really becoming um, a little bit more uh, publicized kind of, you know, Indigenous Canadians and our cultures and the history of colonization. And, you know, most recently in the last year, all the um, discovery of the unmarked graves all at residential schools. And so, you know, more and more Canadians are kind of learning a lot more about this. Um, But anyway, so Inuit is the correct term to use. So a lot of folks would know or have heard the term Eskimo, which is a racial slur, okay, that is coming from an Inuk, that is a racial slur. Um, You know, you might hear Inuit say that to each other. And that's fine, because that's them or us using it amongst ourselves. And you can make certain um, comparisons to other cultures, right? I won't get into that, but you can you can understand that, you know, that happens. Um, and so, you know, we are the people that uh, inhabit 
the the Arctic, the Canadian Arctic, but also, you know, the Arctic around the world or well, almost around the world. And so uh, really Inuit span from Northern Alaska all the way to Labrador here uh, on the East Coast. Um, and it's a very distinct culture from First Nations, which what, again, people would have called Indian. And so First Nations is, again, the correct term, because there are many different types of First Nations within Canada and North America, and they all have their own cultures. They're all distinctly different. And so Inuit is distinctly different from First Nations, which is also distinctly different from Métis, which is the other large um, group of Indigenous Canadians. So uh, Inuit are, you know, we were the ones that inhabit the North uh, with our own culture were the ones that yes did live and make igloos um in fact my maternal grandfather was born in an igloo there were no white people up there at the time there were no settlers yet uh up where he or my family's from so he legitimately was born in an igloo um and you know dog sleds yes my family had dog sleds but you know when my mother was a child that's how they got around um then you could talk about like the you know dog sled slaughter that the Canadian government did to colonize and kind of really force Inuit into communities because we were uh, historically a nomadic uh, group of people that, you know, followed animals basically throughout the seasons to hunt uh, and survive. And so um, we are, you know, originally from uh, historically, you know, from the north, there's a lot of Inuit, though, in major cities all across Canada. Our language is called Inuktitut. Um, and I think, yeah, the, the other important takeaway is, you know, we are distinctly different from First Nations. You know, your parents are really fascinating people, and I had a chance to read a little bit about them. Can you tell us a little bit about your parents' story? Sure, yeah, and, you know, I'm I'm happy to talk about that, because, again, like I said earlier, I owe so much to them, and they really do come from humble beginnings um, and just kind of I see them both as trailblazers a bit themselves in our families and just really driven individuals in their own ways uh so I I I, you know owe a lot of my drive and determination to them but um but yeah so as mentioned my mother's Inuk so singular for Inuit born and raised in Nunavut in the Arctic there were houses at that point so she was she grew up in like a traditional North American type house um she was the first child or the only child actually in her family to quote unquote, leave the nest. And she just felt she wanted something more for herself than to just be at home in her, in her home community, which is a community of about 300 people. So it's a small place. Um, And so she joined the military uh, and kind of was in a few different places within Canada as you are when you're in the military and um that's where she met my father and my father um you know his parents were eastern european immigrants they got displaced by the war um they settled in toronto uh and his father was really the inspiration for why i wanted to become a surgeon um so my paternal grandfather who i never got to meet died of amyotrophic lateral sclerosis when my father was 12. And um, I was very close to all my other grandparents. So I'd asked my dad, like, well, why do I, I know, you know, other grandpa, like, how come I don't know him? And so I was six and he explained to me, and I remember like very 
honestly, uh, but kindly, you know, to a six-year-old that he had died of this disease called ALS. And, you know, he explained that it's a neurological disease. And kind of, I remember him saying, eats away at the nerves in your body. So you lose all control of like ability to do things, but the whole time your brain is working perfectly well. So you understand what's going on, but you can't do anything and there's no cure. And I remember feeling a bit scared that I didn't want that to happen to my parents or other kids' parents. I thought, you know, nobody should have to live without their parents as a kid. And so I said, okay, or I thought, okay, I'm going to become a neurosurgeon and I'm going to invent a surgery to cure ALS. I was, I was six, <laughs> um, but that literally was my motivation all throughout elementary and high school and even university to get into medicine. And I truly thought I'd want to do neuro neurosurgery. Um, and so he, you know, was raised by my Oma. She was German, um, you know, a single mom. She cleaned dishes at St. Mike's hospital. They were on welfare in order to also support the family. Um, and he then joined the military. Um, that's where my parents met. He was the first to then pursue post-secondary education in his family, which he did when I was actually an infant. Um, and so nobody in my family is in medicine. Like nobody's a nurse, a doctor, a dentist, or a physiotherapist, pharmacist, and like anything that you could think to do with medicine, nobody in my family has been involved with it at all. So I had no kind of exposure to any of that life or lifestyle growing up, but I just felt this call, like if this sounds corny, but literally this calling within me that like, this is what you should do, Donna. This is what you need to do to help people in the world um, that you, you're gonna do this. And I, again, I'm just super thankful that my parents were really supportive. I remember all they said when I told them that I wanna be a nurse and they said, okay, you're gonna have to work really hard in school. I said, okay, sure. Um, and I, I guess I did. So, so here I am now. Yeah. And our listeners should know that you went on to train in some very, very prestigious places. <laughs> and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that in, uh, some more at length, I'm sure. What eventually made you switch from the, the heart to the brain, or sorry, from the brain to the heart, rather? Uh, what what drew <laughs> yeah. you into cardiac surgery? Yeah. So, um, you know, I went to the University of Calgary for medical school um, and a couple things that drew me there. I really loved that it was a three-year med school. Um, so you're in school 12 months out of the year. And I remember, I don't remember his title, I think Dean of Admissions or Dean of the Undergraduate Medical Education. He said, you know, when you're a pro athlete, you don't train hard for eight months and then do nothing for four months and then come back in September and expect to be at the same level. You train 12 months out of the year. And that really stuck with me. I was like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Like, that's how I want to learn medicine. And I just like in my gut, it felt right. Like, that's how I've made a lot of my decisions in my life is like what feels right to me. And it just felt like I'd fit in there and I'd have fun. And so um, I was in med school and um, I started shadowing general surgery or pediatric general surgery, actually, which I really love. There's a fantastic group of pediatric surgeons in Calgary. I mean, I think I just loved working with them, like as well as the surgeries. And I thought, okay, well, maybe I want to pursue general surgery. And I hate to say this, but I had reached out to a neurosurgeon. I don't even remember their name um, because I'd heard, you know, they're really good with students and really accepting of having students. And they never responded. So that actually really turned me off from neurosurgery. Uh, and then it came to our heart uh, and lung course. 
And I just loved the cardiac physiology. Like I absolutely loved studying it. I found it so interesting. I remember I had post-its all over my wall on top of my desk with like all the murmurs of the heart and all the characteristics and like the cardiac cycle. Like I loved it. And so I just felt, okay, I need to, I need to see this. And Dr. Fadak, uh, who's a cardiac surgeon in Calgary, gave a lecture on some of the common surgeries. I was totally enthralled. Um, and so I thought, okay, I need to see this. And, you know, being from Ottawa, I reached out to uh, one of the surgeons in Ottawa, just out of the blue, <laughs> and said, hey, I'm really interested. Um, can I come shadow you? Because I knew I could come back to Ottawa and, and be here for a couple of weeks with, at home and, and shadow him. And that is actually Dr. Mark Ruel, who is who then became the chief at Ottawa, and he's the president of the Canadian Cardiovascular Society and very renowned <laughs> uh, cardiac surgeon. And so I you know, I kind of got in with the right person. He's an amazing individual. He's so altruistic and enthusiastic about cardiac surgery that it just really kind of drew me in. And again, I felt it in my gut. Like these are the type of people I want to work with. These are the type of people I want to surround myself with. Um, and I really liked cardiac surgery. Like, you know, everyone says, Oh, it's just bypasses valves, but like, it's so much more to that. And no two patients are the same. And it's this really kind of fine, intricate work like I'm using a lot of very small needles so adoprolines and I know other surgeries do that too but um it just it just felt right I, I was just most interested in it most fascinated by it uh, and so that's what kind of drew me to the field that's that's really neat so we know why you went down the cardiac surgery road and we know you started out in Newfoundland um, uh -huh. tell us, uh, tell us about that, that pathway and how you ended up essentially where you are now. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I, you know, in Calgary for med school, then, you know, applied to residency. Um, I had done a lot of electives in Ottawa, so it was very clear to a lot of people that I was really gunning for Ottawa. Um, again, I just, I really liked the group there. I knew that they did all types of surgeries that I'd be exposed to everything. Uh, and I was very fortunate to match to my top choice. So I, I did my residency there, um, which was great. And it was getting into the senior years and it's pretty standard in cardiac surgery that everybody does a fellowship afterwards. Um, and a lot of trainees actually do two fellowships. That's actually pretty standard. And so it was kind of the first time in my life that I didn't really know exactly where I wanted to go. Kind of all decisions beforehand, I, I knew where I wanted to go to university. I knew where I wanted to go to med school, kind of had an idea. And this time I was like, oh, you know, I'm PGY5 and it's a six-year program. I was like, oh dear, I don't really, I don't really know. And so chatted with a couple mentors and um, I'm really thankful because both these guys really kind of believed in me. Um, and one, I, you know, I was thinking of potentially going to Belgium because that's where one of my mentors came from. And I mean, just his technical skill is unreal. Like I was like, holy moly, like I need to be like this. And then another one, he thought, you know, Donna, you got to go to Cleveland Clinic. Like you will do well there. Um, you're going to be able to learn this very specialized surgery that not many surgeons can offer. And that's going to add to your repertoire that'll make you attractive, like as a, as a hire. And I said, okay. And I... I actually felt a little like a little intimidated applying to the Cleveland clinic, right? It's the number one heart center in North America. And actually they just published for the 28th year in a row. They're still number one. And so I remember thinking, geez, like, I don't know. I don't know. Like, am, am I, am I good enough? Uh, 
you know, will they look at me and think, oh, Jesus, like she doesn't have enough research or she doesn't have enough of this or that or whatever. Uh, but I interviewed and, um, and I, and I got accepted. And so I felt, okay, yeah, I got to go. Um, and while I was there, I felt, I, you know, I was like, I don't think I need to do another fellowship. I mean, you are exposed to literally every type of surgery in Cleveland. The volume is insane. Um, there's so much opportunity to do, you know, any type of surgery, um, that I felt, okay, this will, I think I feel ready to now go into the real world and, and be a big girl and a staff surgeon. Um, and so I, sorry, this is a very long answer, but I, I, early on, I felt, you know, I want to come back to Canada and, um, I, you know, considering maybe Ottawa, uh, I didn't feel like it'd be the right fit for me for, uh, certain reasons I won't get into. Uh, and so I started looking, I saw that Newfoundland was hiring and I had never been here, <laughs> never visited, never done anything out here, but I applied. Um, and I interviewed and I just got a great feeling from the cardiologists and the surgeons. Uh, and I was very fortunate. They gave me a job offer shortly thereafter and uh, I took it. I think it's clear you, you would fit in in any practice anywhere <laughs> in the world and, and be a huge added bonus to that practice and, and, and a, an absolutely wonderful person to have. But you have spoken on a number of occasions about being warned about not being tip, the typical surgical sort of personality, the, the typical mold uh, origin, so to speak. Can, can you talk to us a little bit about how you process those comments and, and, and what that's meant to you? Yeah. Yeah. And so these were, you know, comments or kind of feedback that I got when I was a resident, you know, transitioning kind of from the junior role to more senior role. And, you know, unfortunately, it's something that I see a lot of female trainees share very openly on social media that, you know, these are the same experiences they have too, right? And so, you know, you're quote unquote, too nice, too timid, you're meek, um, you know, because two part of this is kind of cultural that I might not speak up as much or speak as much as maybe my male colleagues. And especially, I don't know if you've met Inuit, but there's a lot of Inuit who are very, you know, tend to be quiet or very stoic or, you know, you'll be talking with them and you might think, well, are they actually listening to me? It's like, we are, but we're processing it. We're not necessarily going to speak just to, for the sake of speaking type thing. Um, and so these are things that, I just don't think cardiac surgery has been necessarily used to, especially, I mean, I was only the second female trainee ever to go through the program in Ottawa and there's no female staff there. I mean, I think there's only, I think it's maybe 12% now of all staff cardiac surgeons in Canada are female, like 12%. So um, it's just not something, you know, I, I, I'm just not the typical male trainee perhaps that they get who might be a little bit more outspoken or a little bit more I don't want to say aggressive but like outgoing and going after what they want like for example talking with one of my female colleagues in training we were very similar we would never ask hey can I do this in the case or hey I want to do this distal or I want to do this whole surgery like that just wasn't our style uh, but I'd have male colleagues who would be very open asking well I want to do this or can I do that which is, which is fine, which is cardiac surgery very, you know, they very much respond to that. But because I wasn't like that, I think it was felt by some people, well, does she really know what's going on? Does she know what to do? Can she be a leader in the OR? 
uh, which I understand where they're coming from. But um, I think I just had to prove myself a little bit um, that I did know what I was doing, that I, you know, felt confident. I understood the steps. And that, you know, was in various forms. I remember I worked with a couple retired surgeons and after hours and I would go practice parts of surgery so that when I came to the OR, I knew my stuff. Like I was ready to go. Like I just wanted to have no doubt in anybody's mind. Um, And two, something I knew that I brought to the table that was very strong was my communication skills and patient relationships. And that began to really shine through once you start kind of rounding on patients by yourself and like managing them yourself as you get more senior. I think that instilled a lot of confidence and a lot of surgeons saying, okay, like, you know, she's working her butt off. Patients are liking her. She's doing well managing them. You know, let's give her some opportunity. And, and I really clicked with the surgeon who became my closest mentor. Um, so I worked a lot with him and having that consistency in training and somebody who kind of really commits to training you um, just accelerated my skills that much more. Uh, So I kind of, I understood where they were coming from. I, you know, took it to heart and really wanted to digest what they were saying, even though I kind of felt that they were wrong, but you know, these are senior surgeons and they're the people training you. So, you, you know, you think, okay, gosh, you know, maybe they, they must know something that I don't. Um, but I took it to make myself as good as I could be, as strong as I could be. Uh, and really just finally, once I got that confidence, just embraced being myself. And as I had that mentor who really saw how I was growing and developing, he then became a very strong advocate for me, right? With other surgeons saying, no, no, like, she can do it. She's got the hands or whatever it may be. So, um, yeah, it, it, you know, it was a bit challenging, but I think that's good. That's, that makes you grow and that makes you reflect and, um, you know, adjust or tweak things as needed. Dr. Kim Larjak, you wear a lot of, of mantles, a lot of crowns on, on your shoulders and on your head. You know, you're the first cardiac surgeon in Canada and, and clearly one of the few women who are, is in cardiac, who are in cardiac surgery. How do we make the house of surgery, you know, inclusive so that more people can do what you've done? I mean, you're clearly a star, but it hasn't been, what you're describing makes it clear that it, this hasn't been an easy process. This hasn't been an easy journey. What do we do in surgery to make this, this, our, our culture such that, you know, you don't, someone like you doesn't come in and say, you know, I'm not the typical person. Like there, there needs to be, in my mind, you know, role models or or space mm. for for all sorts of people. Like you know, not all leadership styles or not all personalities do things the same way, and we need more of that. And especially set, to to make it possible for such talented people like you to come in. So, what do you think? Like, how can we make surgery better? Yeah, and I mean, it's a big question, and I think. Um, you know, realistically, or unfortunately, potentially, like we won't see all the great improvements that we need to see within surgery and medicine for a few years. Because I think it really starts with like, looking back to like university and med school, like how do we get young, intelligent, driven, motivated, you know, interested people pursuing medicine in the first place, right? Like, there's potentially young people who are or were like me or are like me who didn't have any of that exposure, right? So what you're not exposed to, you don't 
necessarily know that you can do or think about it. And so I think it even starts back at that stage. And then, you know, with within getting into med school, it's great. We're seeing like a lot of classes are split evenly, or there's even more women now than men in med school. But again, talking with young women, which I'm very fortunate to get the opportunity to do so, they're still being told these erroneous, like, silly things of like, well, you can't have a family and be a surgeon, or, you know, you're not going to get a job, or you're going to be in training forever, or whatever it may be that really discourages or frightens women out of surgery. And it's usually by people who are not surgeons or working in that field themselves, which is very frustrating. Um, So we need to like stop that narrative that, you know, you can't have, I don't want to say have it all, but you can't uh, have a balanced life or have a family or pursue things that you want to do that needs to stop. Um, we need to support our women in surgery, like having senior colleagues who understand that women and, or other minorities or what have you might, or are different than the typical white cis male trainee that comes through the program. And that's not a bad thing. It doesn't mean you're any weaker or, less competent um you need and i think too it's important that we have like allies or you know folks who who you know my mentor who then became a strong ally and advocate for me um it's so multifaceted like it really has to come from within current surgeons though because leadership is really going to reflect then attitude and like that, that will trickle down, right? So I think you have to have programs, whether it be program directors, chiefs, whatever, who get it and who advocate uh, and promote this like inclusive environment. Um, that's kind of a vague answer, I think, <laughs> but I do think that's true. It's a huge question, and it's not not a question that that's easy to answer. You know, one of the things I've seen that you talked about is is simply just having more role models. Like, how important do you think it is just to have the representation? Is is that you know, uh, is it, are we should we just be actively recruiting from underrepresented minorities um, and and populations? Do you think that is going to be an important part? I do, I do, and like. You know, a lot of med schools, um, I think, are trying to do that, for example, with Indigenous Canadians, right? Um, and even when I went through med school, which was only 10 years ago, so, um, but uh, there were some initiatives then. And so um, I do think that's so important because then you have representation from these communities, these individuals may go back to their home communities to practice medicine, but they can also be advocates for their communities in medicine. Um, And then, you know, be those role models for young people. So I think that's hugely beneficial and impactful. Um, You know, and just to quickly mention, a few years ago, the um, Truth and Reconciliation Uh, commission came out with a whole bunch of like recommendations and that was one of them that we should see higher numbers of indigenous physicians nurses and people in healthcare, um and to have these people in these positions of leadership and 
quote unquote, like role model positions. So young people, so it can kind of pave the way for young people to young indigenous people to say, well, Hey, I can do that too. Um, so I think there are some efforts being made to try to quote unquote recruit, or at least like motivate or, uh, entice, <laughs> um, young indigenous folks. But I think that's really what I mean by, you know, we're going to see these efforts kind of pay off in years to come because that'll take years for all these young people to go through med school or undergrad and training and that type of thing. You know, I think you you might think that the barriers seem intuitive, right? Like the barriers for indigenous people to get into medicine or to get into surgery see might seem intuitive to you, Dr. Larjack, but I think a lot of people may not know or may not understand what the barriers really are. Can you can, can you try to describe like what were the barriers that 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 what are the barriers that you personally face and more generally like what are the barriers that indigenous folks face when when trying to pursue a career in medicine? And you're right. Like it might seem obvious to me, but to someone who's not indigenous like why would they know about it, right? Like so no excellent questions. So I mean, for example, um, again, I feel very fortunate when I look back on my life, I've been very privileged in many senses, right? Um, so I'm very fortunate that my parents tried to uh, facilitate as much as they could for me to pursue my dreams because they knew it was always my dream to become a doctor. Um, but, you know, to growing up, I remember them saying, you know, you can be anything you want in the world. Like if you, whatever you want to do for your career or when you're grown up, you can do that, but you have to go get either a university or college degree. Cause they understood that that could be something I could fall back on. And that'd be hugely valuable, especially as an indigenous Canadian, that's like a golden ticket that. So if I want to go be, try to be a world pop star and that fails, but I've got my degree in whatever I can always come back and use that for something, right? To at least be able to support myself and have a job or a career. And so I said, okay, that's fine. Like, I, I want to go to university. I, you know, I want to do these things. But when the time came in high school to apply to university, um, I remember this. It cost $105. And I grew up in Ontario. So it would get you this, like, online account. And uh, it would let you also then apply to three universities with at $105. And then if you wanted to apply to more universities, you'd have to pay more for those applications. And I had to pay for my own application myself. Like financially, my parents were unable to do that at the time. And I had a little part-time job that I did. And so I had the money to do it, but I only applied to three because I didn't want to have to spend any more money. <laughs> and I was pretty confident in my grades and in myself that I would get into one of them at least. Uh, and so I applied to the three. And so like, you know, finances can be a huge barrier. And I mean, this could be a whole conversation, but if you look at, for example, up North and I forgive me, I'm not going to have the exact stats, but the percentage of Inuit that live at or below the poverty line is astounding. And then you compare it to non-Inuit that live in Nunavut, because there's a lot of non-Inuit now that live and work up there and their salaries are fantastic and probably even better because obviously they're going to pay people higher to attract them to come to the north so you know even just things like applying to university or then applying to med school that was expensive now thankfully my father was in a financial he was able to support me and help me and you know facilitate that that's great but like if I didn't have the money how could I even do that 
um, you know, there's two then if you're coming, so I grew up in Ottawa, I grew up in a big city. So I didn't really experience culture shock going to university or med school, because this is kind of the culture I grew up in. But you know, coming from a small isolated community where the majority of people are like you, they look like you, or they have the same culture, they have, you know, or they're, they're your, in a lot of these small communities, they're your distant relative somehow. <laughs> and then you go to this big city where, you know, you don't know anybody, the culture is completely different. The language could be, well, I mean, nowadays, most young Inuit, you know, are very fluent in English, right? But, you know, back then, maybe they weren't as fluent in English. And so a huge culture shock to get over and that you're thousands of kilometers away from your family, from your support system. Um, even when I was in undergrad or med school, like there were times it was really hard, right? And you miss your parents or you want to be with them because you need that support because you're exhausted and stressed and, you know, all those things. And But you don't have that if your family's thousands upon thousands of kilometers away. Uh, and even just the finances of getting home to visit or getting down to med school. I mean, like round trip flights to go to Nunavut are thousands upon thousands of dollars like I can go to Europe first class cheaper than I can go back home so you know finance can be a big barrier um I mean I don't want to get into all that but if you look at other social determinants of health like the housing up north is really really I'm just gonna say it terrible there's so much overcrowding there's mold there's still like tuberculosis is still a problem up there like so when you're trying to just manage basic human needs to live safely and comfortably it can be hard to then try to push further beyond that and I don't want to sound like demeaning or patient because that's not the case for everybody right but like if you if those are such a major like problem like how do you how do you expect to then focus on like oh well I got to get an A plus in calculus like it's just not realistic, right? And then you look at two then, that brings up the history of like residential school. That So that was basically, I'm going to simplify this a lot for people who don't know that history, but basically, lack of a better word, boarding schools, but they, in some cases, stole your children from you. Uh, my mother went to residential school. Uh, and so they were in these schools where they were completely abused in every which way by the teachers who were Catholic priests and nuns. And so then you have your parents or grandparents who went through residential school. That causes a lot of trauma and grief and difficulties for the people who went through all that abuse. And then it creates what we call or what is called intergenerational trauma. And so then when people want to stereotype us as drunks or drug addicts, or whatever, well, there's a reason for that behavior or that those problems in some people, because they've experienced, unfortunately, some very terrible things that nobody should experience. And then that leads to, you know, whether it be abuse towards their children or neglect of their children, or again, I'm oversimplifying and overgeneralizing, because that's definitely not the case for everybody. I don't want people taking that as a take home, but these are just so many things that can compound, um, someone's like a young person's life and like what they have to deal with on top of then trying to think of, you know, 
oh, well, I better do really well in school. I better do all my extracurriculars and my volunteer work and all this. So I have a great application for university. You can, you can very easily understand why that might not be the case for some people. Uh, So I hope that answers your question. (laughs) Yeah, that's a really uh, important answer, to be honest. You know, just to take it sort of back up to 30,000 feet, um, for those of us that do trauma care, it's clear that, you know, trauma outcomes from major injury or polytrauma differ tremendously across Canada and across uh, different geographies, essentially based on on travel distance to a, a level one trauma center. You were a co-author in a, a CMAJ paper that showed very clearly a significant increase in the odds of mortality and morbidity after surgery uh, in Nunavut. Um, I, I'm curious when you did that work at Ottawa, um, how you framed it, what came out of it, and maybe you could inform our, our listeners about that absolutely tremendous paper. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, I can't take credit for having that idea to pursue um, pursue this paper, but I'm really fortunate to have been involved. Um, and so basically there was a group of us um, that did a retrospective cohort study looking at outcomes uh, for patients who were Inuit and patients who were not Inuit and specifically um, Inuit patients from Nunavut. And that's because we have a very specific like identifier, um, which I have as well, it's called our N number. And so you only have that if you're an Inuk with or from Nunavut. And so that's how we were able to very accurately identify Inuit and then compare them to, you know, all the other patients that come to the Ottawa hospital. And this was just the one center that we looked at because this is where we all kind of worked. And we did not look at cardiac surgery. I remember that very clearly. And that's mostly, I think, because the Heart Institute is a bit separate from the Ottawa hospital. And forgive me, I don't have the paper in front of me, but I also think we did not look at obstetrical care slash gynecology and potentially not... There was something else. Please forgive me. <laughs> but anyways, when we looked at all other types of surgery, so, you know, orthopedics, plastics, all that stuff. Um, and uh, we were, what was, I think, really important about this paper is this was the first published paper looking at only surgical outcomes for only Inuit. Because other papers have looked at, you know, pan-Indigenous Canadians. So that includes Métis, First Nations, Inuit. And then it become, it can become very difficult to pinpoint, you know, where are these patients actually coming from or, you know, like geographically or culturally. And so this was the first paper to look at just Inuit. And we wanted to look at uh, really the 30-day outcomes uh, for these patients who've had surgery. And you know, as a surgeon and as an Inuk, it's not a surprise to see that Inuit had a 25% relative increase in odds of, you know, major complications or death within those 30 days after surgery compared to non-Inuit. And so why that, you know, is not surprising. And to even living in Newfoundland, I can see now, like, this is not surprising because geographically, I, I treat patients up in Labrador. And so if they need cardiac surgery or they need trauma surgery or what have you, just the time delay in getting someone transferred from thousands of kilometers away down to the hospital, uh, that adds time. Uh, lack of access to care. I mean, there's so many communities that don't have a doctor there all the time. Maybe a nurse, maybe a doctor comes once a month. 
or maybe a nurse practitioner. So you're getting delayed in diagnosis. So then obviously, you know, delay in diagnosis, you have a more advanced stage of your disease, whatever that may disease, whatever that disease may be. And so you're presenting to surgery sicker. Uh, and as a heart surgeon, when they have worse, you know, aortic stenosis or worse coronary disease and everything's calcified, it makes it harder. Like, to have, like there's some of the hardest cases I've seen here for a straight up like triple bypass or straight up aortic valve replacement. I'm like, holy crap, like what the heck? And it's just because there's lack of access to care. So by the time they do get seen by a specialist and worked up, their valve is so severely snows or their coronary arteries are so severely calcified. Like technically it's a bugger like, or they're sicker, right? Maybe their heart is now weaker, which is no good. Like then it makes it harder for them to get through surgery. So it makes sense that they're going to have a higher chance of having complications or of dying. Um, so, you know, it's the first kind of paper to look at this. We're then hopefully going to look at now, you know, like one year outcomes. Um, if there's any differences there between Inuit and non-Inuit. And again, it's just Inuit from Nunavut because we were able, first of all, Ottawa was kind of the uh, quaternary center for patients from Nunavut, specifically Baffin Island. Um, but then also we're able to very accurately identify who are actually Inuit patients and who are not. Um, and so it'd be fantastic to do similar studies at other hospitals across Canada and all, you know, also with other uh, indigenous cultures, but it can, it can be tricky. Cause then, you know, how do you identify someone who's indigenous or not? It, it can be a little logistically tricky, but, um, it kind of tells us what we as anyone knew, but now when you have something like this written on paper to actually quote unquote, prove it, that there are worse outcomes, then that can hopefully influence policy, right. And resource utilization and distribution and actually hopefully affect change that we would love to see so that all Canadians have the same access to excellent care and equitable outcomes. You know, what one aspect of this is the access to care and delays to care. Um, mm -hmm. But, but I'm curious your thoughts about care once, once, um, you know, Indigenous uh, folks actually uh, reach care are there things that we could do to better serve those patients in the hospital? Like, are there, are there things that, that um, non-Indigenous physicians do perhaps and often without even thinking that, that perhaps alienate their patients or make it more difficult for them? Uh, what, are, what are some things that we could do to make care for Indigenous patients within the hospital or within our clinics uh, more yeah. inclusive and, and welcoming? Yeah, excellent question. Um, so I've been asked this, you know, a few times by different people in different settings. And so one thing that may seem like so basic, but I see it way more than I, you know, should see it is the use of a translator. So I mean, that's for like any, any person of any who's not a native English speaking person, right? Like, it's so basic, but like, they need to understand what you're telling them and you need to be able to understand them too, right? Like to take a proper history and to then to express like, you know, your plan of care, like you, we need to be using translators and it's not sufficient to use family members or just to rely on them or to say, Oh, well, I don't have a translator. Like, I don't know what's going on. Like that's so like not acceptable. So I get it. Sometimes it's a pain in the butt. It's the middle of the night or you're busy on rounds or whatever, but like, 
we need to do a better job at that to ensure that we're providing care that a patient understands and that you understand them. Um, so that's like, I think, really something that's like tangible, that is hopefully feasible, that should be done. Um, and I think too, like, understanding, trying to understand, you know, your patient, whatever their living situation may be. For example, when I have patients from Labrador or from very small remote communities, like something so simple, like, okay, well, I'm going to ensure that I'm not going to use staples in the leg because I don't want them to have to worry about getting those staples out in 10 days, right? Like even just simple things like that. Um, I know a lot of hospitals are now looking at including, I believe the Ottawa hospital is doing it too. Um, places for patients to kind of practice their traditional ceremonies or traditional healing practice practices. So for example, smudging, which that is uh, done within First Nations cultures. It's not in, part of our Inuit culture, but can be very healing for patients. Um, maybe having elders. I, I can't remember if that's what Ottawa's doing, but elders are, are very, you know, respected to an Inuit culture and can be a great source of healing, like spiritually, uh, mentally, emotionally, as you're going through your illness in hospital. Uh, that's kind of maybe more on like administrative levels to facilitate that. Um, something else, don't be racist as a healthcare provider. Again, this sounds so basic, but I'll share very quickly here. I was a resident in Ottawa, and I don't want to give too many details, but we were involved in the care of a patient. And um, as I'm going through the patient's chart, I see that a physician had written in the chart. And so I'll, I'll share this. It was a pediatric patient. They were like three weeks old. Uh, and uh, Inuit. And um, a physician had written in their chart, patient is at higher risk for um, narcotic tolerance or um, withdrawal, I can't remember the wording, because they are Inuit from Nunavut. Like this is a three-week-old baby. And it was documented in the chart by the, in the admitting team that the mother had never used drugs. But because we, they were Inuit, this physician just marked her automatically as a drug user when it was like clearly written that she is not. Like, that's so racist. Like, don't, don't be that guy. Don't wow. do that. Wow. Like, that's so terrible. And then I reported it and it was like a slap on the wrist. Like, oh, well, you'll do some cultural training. Like, this is ridiculous. So, you know, you just like, just don't be racist. Don't assume. And you like, there's so many stories, right? Like people come in, they, they've had a stroke, but they think that they're drunk or, you know, Joyce Ashaquan was crying in pain and, I don't know if there was this video, I don't know if you've seen it or heard of it, but nurses being outwardly racist towards her. And she ended up dying in the merge. Brian Sinclair waited like three days on a stretcher in a merge in Winnipeg and died in a merge, another Indigenous person. Like, don't be racist. I know that's easier said than done, maybe for some people. But like, at the end of the day, you signed on to be a healthcare provider to treat all people. Like, if you're not okay treating all people, and that could go, that could be the same for any minority, whether it be, you know, LGBTQ plus patients or another minority, uh, cultural minority patient here in Canada. Like, if you're not okay with that, then get out. Like, or give them, like, you, it's, you can hear I'm getting worked up. Like, it's just, 
is ridiculous. So those would be very tangible, basic things to start with. And then, you know, like this type of thing, like ask questions, like go learn, go read it. It's actually cool that Newfoundland like forces, forces <laughs> um, all physicians when they're renewing their license that we had to do this online module where we learned about the history of indigenous cultures that were here in Newfoundland and Labrador before colonization and kind of the effects of colonization and kind of what those cultures are now and what their practices might include. Like, that's super awesome that Newfoundland does that, that it's at least something for people who are not Indigenous to learn about Indigenous people, Indigenous cultures here and kind of how that might relate to their health or and certain health outcomes or like attitudes toward health. Like those would be really amazing. But let's just start with like, not being a racist and use a translator we we try and end every podcast as you probably know with a, a sort of a standard question it's always really interesting what what our guests have to say but that question really simply is if if you were able to go back um, to your younger self whether that's you know starting training or starting your job or starting residency or whatever that is at some point in time give yourself some advice, uh, what would that advice be? And, and what time would that have been? Yeah, you know, um, I've been thinking about this, because, like, if I'm going to be honest with you, and I don't want this to come out as like, cocky, or I don't know, and it's probably bizarre. But I honestly don't know what advice I would give myself. And I wouldn't really, like, I when I've been asked questions some of this, I would just say, Oh, just keep doing what you're doing. Like, Honestly, I don't know. I've always just felt pretty driven, fairly like, like secure. I don't want to say too confident because I mean, you know, I'm not, not the best. I'm not like, I'm not trying to be like that, but like secure in myself that, you know, I'm going to get there. You know, the training program is set the way that it is because that's going to make, you know, you're going to be able to be a surgeon at the end of that. Like, you know, you're going to be able to do this and that. Like, I just, I felt pretty secure and you know I'm not saying every decision I've made is like the best decision but you know you kind of it takes you down a path that I think you're meant to be on and that sounds maybe a little uh spiritual but I kind of believe that so this might be a weird answer but I don't really have any advice and again that I don't want to sound cocky but I'm happy with the decisions I've made and again it maybe it wasn't the best or maybe I could have made another one and that's that's fair but I'm the path I've taken has been that path for a reason to shape me into the person that I am today and to give me the experiences that you know make me stronger better nicer smarter whatever um so that 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 that'd be my answer You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. We love to hear your thoughts, comments, and feedback. So send us an email at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or tweet at us at CanJSurge. Thanks again.